Moshe understands something very profound. For Jews, it's easier to build their country. It's harder to keep it going. I'm saying that while I right now on the verge of, I don't want to say a panic attack, but I'm filled with anxiety as an Israeli in 2023, understanding that the job of building Israel was hard, but sustaining it, keeping it going might even be harder. That is what Moshe understood. He doesn't give him one piece of advice how to conquer Israel. His all his advice, all his struggles now, after you're successful, how does that success not destroy you? How do you stay in Israel? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Two months ago, on September 8th, I recorded an interview with Micha Goodman about Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy. He wrote a book about Dvarim, which was recently translated into English, entitled The Last Words of Moses, and published by Magid Books. The interview was really fascinating, both because of the theological insights that Micha provided, and also because of the way that he was able to relate Moshe's words to current events in the state of Israel. At the time, I planned to release this episode as the first episode of our new season, which began after Sukkot. Of course, everything changed with the terrible Hamas massacre of October 7th and a podcast dedicated to Sefer Zvarim that also talked about some of the issues facing Israel before October 7th seemed hopelessly anachronistic. But I decided to listen to the interview again, and as I heard what Micha Goodman said, I realized that his words are actually now more relevant than ever. He sees Moshe's words in Sefer Dvarim as the primary guide for what Israel needs to do in order for us to stay in our land and to create the kind of society that God wants us to create. For the first time in 50 years, many of us have realized that our hold on the land of Israel is not unconditional and it's not free. And just as we need to protect Israel militarily from those who would destroy her, we also need to think about what Israel needs to become in order to be worthy of the sacrifices that so many have made on her behalf. I think that the shock of what happened over the past 37 days will likely lead to a realignment of life in Israel on many levels, political, social, and religious. Things will never be the same, and our role has to be to use the moments that are going to arrive in order to create a state of Israel that refuses to fall into tired old patterns, but instead represents what we want a true Jewish society to be. With that in mind, please listen to this conversation and consider not only what we want Israel to become— but what Moshe Rabbeinu, our teacher Moses, said that Israel has to become. We'll get to that discussion in a moment. First, I want to ask you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate it and write a review and share it with people who'll enjoy it as well. I have a substack called Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, to which you can subscribe for free. The link is in the description of this podcast. Over the past week, I released two new articles. The first, entitled Our Son and the IDF, addresses my emotions when our son Yaakov received notice that he will be called up to the Israeli army this December. And the second, entitled A Mark on My Forehead, A Mark on Yours, is a way of dealing with the nonstop gaslighting that so many Jews have been experiencing over the past weeks. Please check them out, and please again subscribe today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Micha Goodman was named by the Jerusalem Post as one of the 50 most influential Jews in 2017 and by the Israeli magazine Liberal as one of the 100 most influential Israelis in 2019. He is the author of six best-selling books, his first three, The Last Words of Moses, The Dream of the Kuzari, and The Secrets of the Guide for the Perplexed, explore classical Jewish thought. His next three, The Wandering Jew, Catch 67, and The Attention Revolution, explore contemporary Israeli issues and ideas. Dr. Micha Goodman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. I'm glad to be here. You wrote a book which was recently translated into English as The Last Words of Moses. It's a wide-ranging interpretation of Sefer Dvarim, and it starts from the perspective that these are the words of Moshe Rabbeinu rather than the words of God himself. I think some people find that surprising. I don't. We can discuss that as well. 
you argue because of that, that this is his unique interpretation of everything that had transpired over the previous 40 years and his anticipation of what has to happen when they go into the land of Israel. I just finished reading it and it was absolutely enlightening and fantastic. I really enjoyed it very much and learned a lot from it. So to start off, let me ask you why you wrote this book and what were you trying to accomplish in this book? This book is coming out now in English, but it came out in 2014 in Hebrew. And it's still relevant because the Tanakh is always relevant and the Torah is still relevant and Moshe is always relevant. But the only thing that's less relevant is me, myself. I have a hard time tapping into who I was when I was writing this book in 2012 and 2013. And also I'm highly influenced by the way the book was received in Israel by Israelis. And I could now you know, reverse engineer and try to tell myself a story that the purpose of the book is what it did to Israelis. But I think they had a different, but I'll tell you what it did to Israelis. I want to hear that too. Yes. Okay. So I think Israelis understood this book as a book about power. It's a book about our, how do we build a healthy relationship between us and the power that we have and that we own, and on an individual level and on a collective level. And here's how many Israelis understood or told me that this is what the book has done for them. I think I had a, in my mind, I probably had a different agenda. Maybe I'll share that with you in a minute. But like the way Israelis understood it was the following. You know how all these self-help books, I have a theory that there's always a common denominator where people tell their stories, their life stories, that there's always a crisis there. Now they went to the crisis and got strong thanks to the crisis. And it's always about how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with a crisis? And yeah. um, I think the book of Deuteronomy is asking the opposite question. Not how do you deal with failure, but how do you deal with success? Interesting. With the moral, ethical, theological dangers of success. And that is true as individuals, where we could be the moral victims of our own success. And... But more importantly, it's also it's also true as a collective. What happens when as a collective we become very strong, as a collective very powerful, as a collective very successful? Now, there were in the ancient world, even Jews like, for example, Jesus, or the way he's commonly interpreted, that success, well, abundance, power is so dangerous. Spiritually, let's avoid it. I would say a contemporary parallel to that is people like Franz Rosenzweig, Hermann Koch, one of the century important thinkers, important philosophers that said that power corrupts and Jews have power. Jews will be corrupted by their own power. And that's why they, they were against Zionism. Now, Moshe shares the sensibility. Power is dangerous, but he doesn't share the conclusion. Therefore, we avoid power. We need power. We need power for two reasons. We need to be strong in order to survive in a hostile world. And we need power because without power, we can't change and heal the world. But here's the question. Here's the paradox that I think is in the heart of the book of Sefer Bali. We need power in order to change the world. But when you have power, it's your eternal world that changes. We need power in order to heal the world. You can't heal the world without power. Once you have power, the negative impact of power could change your world and destroy your own world. So how do they have power so you could change the world without your world being changed and destroyed? That is not, that is the challenge that the book of Setevalim, the Deuteronomy, the last words of Moses, are trying to deal with that question. So I'm sharing it, and he writes this book. I mean, Moshe understands when he delivers this speech that Three important things are going to happen to the Jewish people right after he finishes his speech and not. Three important things. One, they're separating themselves from their leader. That itself, that itself could shake a society where their admired leader is God. Two, they enter entity Israel. And three, they, come, they become powerful. It's a political change. It's a territorial change. But it's also... They stop, once they enter Elohim, conquer Elohim, build a monarchy, it's a radical shift in their own story. They, they, so they transform themselves from being powerless to becoming powerful. That piece, the transformation, 
being powerless to being powerful. And how do you deal with that transformation? That is a piece, of, an important piece of Moses' last words. It's an important piece of my book about Moses' last words. And very interesting, that's the piece of my book that, that was echoed most when the book came out in Israel in 2014. And of course, that makes sense, given that Israel is where this actually applies in a practical level today, which you discuss as well. But Micha, if you can tell me, you said that wasn't necessarily your original agenda in writing the book. Yes, it's a piece of the book. It's a few chapters in the book. I wrote the book, I think I started being, I'll tell you the truth. I don't think I ever shown this before. I didn't want to write a book about Sethothon. I wanted to write a book about Nidhi'im Rishon. Yoshua, Shoftim, Shmuel Aleph, Shmuel Bet, Menachim Aleph, Menachim Bet. And I think there's a grand narrative between Yoshua and Menachim. And because Sefer Dvarim is a good introduction to Nevi'im Rishoni, I thought, hey, I'll study Sefer Dvarim. And then from there, I'll move. But then the introduction to Nevi'im Rishoni, the introduction to the book became the book. Because I discovered Sefer Dvarim while I was working on Nevi'im Rishoni. I discovered Sefer Dvarim because I thought if Sefer Dvarim is the introduction to the to Yoshua Shofi, to the next four books, by the way, it's four books because Shmuel Aleph and Shmuel Bet used to be one book, and Menachim Aleph and Menachim Bet used to be one book. But I noticed, so interesting, that Sefer Dvarim is a summary of the first four books, and it's an introduction to the next four books. Interesting. It's right in the middle. It's right in the middle. And I realized Sefer Dvarim is, an, is a centerpiece of the entire grand biblical narrative. So I started thinking about Sefer Dvarim as a window that if we look clearly in through this window, we could see the, the, the deepest secrets of the Tanakh itself. So I started realizing that Sefer Dvarim is an introduction to biblical philosophy. I thought, I don't want to write a book about biblical philosophy. That's too big. But the closest I could get, I think the book that itself is an introduction to biblical philosophy is Sefer Dvarim. So because I'm interested in philosophy, and my first two books were about the philosophy of Maimonides and the philosophy of the Kuzari, I wanted to buy a book about the philosophy of the Bible. That's too pretentious, the philosophy of the Bible. But the closest I could get is to write about the hidden ideas in Sefer Dvarim, which I do think capture some of the deep essence and ideas of the Bible itself. And of course, in the book itself, you do have a little bit of the introduction to the future as you compare and contrast Yoshua and Shlomo HaMelech and how they exactly. implemented the ideals of Devarim. So that is clearly there manifest in the book on some level. The piece with, in the end, the Yimri are a chapter. If they're not the book, they're a chapter in a different book. Right. Yes. But I find it interesting that you say that this is, in some ways, the centerpiece, the keystone of biblical philosophy, only yes. because of your understanding that these are the words of Moshe Rabbeinu, as opposed to the words of Hashem, which is yes. what the first four books of the Torah are. And what I mean by that is this. I don't find that to be theologically problematic, even though you have a conclusion, you have an afterword where you discuss these issues, because frankly, if we look throughout the Torah, there are people who are quoted all the time. Paro's quoted, Avraham's quoted, Yitzchak's quoted, Yaakov's quoted, Avimelech's quoted, etc. This is just a long quote. He said it, and it was a long quote that was included. So I don't see the theological problem, even though I understand some people might. Nevertheless, you also suggest that Moshe is in some ways reframing what had been learned in the first books, or specifically the previous three books, the legal books of the Torah, and expressing it in somewhat different terms and perhaps emphasizing different ideas. For example, you discuss the de-emphasis of the Beit HaMikdash, or more specifically, the de-emphasis on sacrifices and a re-emphasis on one specific place, but removing God from that. We'll get to all that in a moment. What I mean to ask is this. Given that you see this specifically as Moshe's almost interpretation of the things that had been said previously, how can this represent sort of the centerpiece of biblical philosophy as opposed to, so to speak, an interpretation of biblical philosophy? You know what? Maybe that's that's maybe this is an interpretation of biblical philosophy. Maybe I'll maybe I'll buy your, the way you're framing it. I'll just because Moshe tells the entire story all over again, and as we all know from life, when you hear a story and you tell it again, when you tell it again, again, you're interpreting it first of all because you're choosing which parts to tell again and which not to tell again. Some of the parts to tell again, you'll add your own, you'll tell say them in your own words. Every time you are repeating a story or you're telling a story again in your words, you're interpreting it. And that is exactly what Moshe is doing. He's telling Sipur Yitzhiyat and Slime all over again, but differently. I know you want to go into sacrifice in minutes. So I won't go there now. I'll go to a different element. 
When Moshe tells the story all over again, the story of Yetziat Mitzrayim is told without Moshe. You see, it, Moshe has two roles in the Torah. In Sefer Shmot, he is the hero of a story. In Sefer Vodim, he is the teller of a story. By the way, Rabbi, is that English, the teller of a story? It works for me. Like a storytelling? I think it it's good. It works. Okay. We'll go so with in it. Shmot, in the Shmot, he is the hero of a story. He uh, went to Pharaoh, he went to the people, and he took us out of, he led us out of Egypt. That's Shmot. In Sefer Vodim, he's the teller of the story. Now, we know from history that people liked out both roles to be a hero of a historic event, and then to be the historian of that event, like Josephus Papius. He is one of the most important players in the great revolt of the, of, the, of the Jews against the Romans, and then he becomes the historian of that revolt, like David Ben-Gurion. I believe it was Winston Churchill who said, history will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Exactly. Churchill's a great example. He is the hero of World War II, and he tried to be the storyteller of World War II in that gigantic four books about World War II he wrote. But usually, what's the motivation of people like Josephus, of Churchill, of Ben-Gurion, when they want both roles? I think we know what, like you said, like Churchill said, I think when they are the heroes of the story, they're trying to shape the future. When they are talents of the story, they're trying to shape the past. And almost all of these their agenda is because they want to just make sure that we all remember their role in the story of the past. Moshe has two both roles. In Shmuel, he creates the future, and in Zavim, is creating the narrative, the image of the past. But paradoxically, what he does when he tells the story all over again, he tells a story of Exodus without Moshe. Like Moshe was never a part of the story. He didn't take us he didn't deal with the politics of Pharaoh. He didn't deal with the exodus from Egypt. He didn't deal with the with the threatening challenges of the Midbar. I know a lot of readers already noticed that in the Agadash and Pesach, Moshe is barely mentioned. We like to say how amazing it that we tell the story without the hero of it. We're taking the hero of the story out of the story. But the truth is that the first person to sit without Moshe, was Moshe. And by the way, let me mention that we don't usually notice this only because we seldom look at Sefer Devarim in isolation. We always read it as part of a continuum with that which came before. So what you're doing is very important. You're noticing things that many of us will just pass by because we see the same story and just interpolate that which was said earlier into that story without noticing its unique characteristics. I think it's very interesting as Talmidim of Torah, students of Torah, what we do a lot of times, we read other layers of text into the text. For example, my challenge for my girls is always them to read the Torah without, you know, it doesn't say in Nefesah that Abraham broke the idols of his father. That's Chazal. And subconsciously, we read Chazal into the Torah. If we want the Torah to speak clearly, we have to see, read the Torah without Chazal. But Rabbi, what we're discussing now is even more challenging to read, not only to read the Torah without Chazal, to read the Torah without parts of the Torah. To read Sefer Dvarim without Sefer Shmot, without Sefer Bamitbar. To read Sefer Dvarim as it is, stripped from other books. And to listen to Sefer Dvarim as Moshe is asking me to listen to Sefer Dvarim. He's asking me to imagine that I'm one of the Hebrews sitting on the other side of the Jordan Valley, uh, of the Jordan River, on the eastern side, listening to his last words, what were they listening to? And they heard a story told all over again. And Moshe was telling the story, but the story was without Moshe. That's an amazing insight. And what do you think that teaches us about his understanding of his own leadership? What was he trying to convey through that? Well, I have a theory. I mean, I think I'm trying to prove this theory in the book, but I'll just share that theory without you know, going into text now. Moshe remembers what happened last time, that he disappeared, and they thought he's dead. They don't know what happened to him. So what did they do? They worshipped Egen Azahab. The worship of Egen Azahab, the golden calf, the worshiping of the golden calf was a reaction to the absence of Moshe. By the way, I think it's fair to say that the sin, when they said to the, to the golden calf, to Egen Azahab, 
אלה אלוהיך ישראל. אשר אליוך לארץ ישראל. I don't know how to translate. When they see you, the golden gap. You, the golden gap. You are the God who took you out of Egypt. Yes. I think the sin begins when they said, Zen Moshe'i, Shashav Eidanu, Merlech Yitzrayim, Lo Yadanu. Like, that the sin begins when they said that Moshe'i took them out of Egypt. So Nachmanides said that the golden calf wasn't a replacement for God, it was a replacement from Moshe'i, which they idealized in because they were so influenced by Egyptian political theology where you worship political leaders. That's Egypt. So, so the interesting thing is, so Nachmanides has a great line that Ramban says, what is Chet Eged? I'm, I'm trying to quote, How you, that they tried to create for themselves, Moshe Achel. A new Moshe. Eged is a, a new Moshe, a Eged. Okay, so now let's go back, now 40 years later. If me and you, Rabbi, remember what happened last time Moshe disappeared, they violated the covenant. And they turned their backs on God. And that's only when they thought he's dead. What will they do when he's really dead? So Moshe is obvious to them that the crisis that they're going to go through after he dies will only amplify the sin of Chetaeke. And there is Zimazim there, Salomina there, the same language appears again in both places. So I think this is what he does. He tells them, You will thrive without me. You don't need me. You, the people of Israel, are not dependent on me. And you know how I know that you don't need me, you're not dependent on me? Because you never were dependent on me. You never needed me. You did the whole thing without me. So by taking himself out of the past, he is enabling them to survive without him in the future. As opposed to political leaders in our days that try to create the illusion I don't want to become too actual to create the illusion that we can survive without them. Moshe does the opposite. He's creating the narrative that you've always thrived without me, and therefore you could all you could still from now on do it without me. He's trying to minimize the damage of his disappearance. Wow, that's a beautiful idea. That's so important. And by the way, I'll point out one more thing, just in reference to what we said earlier about this being the words of Moshe and the perhaps radical nature of this, I just want to say that Rav Soloveitchik himself once said that Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, begins in Sefer Devarim, which means that, that he... it already is that process of Moshe interpreting what happened. Exactly. So which, which is me. This is Rav Soloveitchik. This is Rabbi Tzadok HaKohen Milublin. This is Rabbi Nuchayim Ben Atar. I think it's Abaye in the Talmud himself says, Mishneh Torah, Moshe Mipi Atzmo Amaran. This is a very from position, by yeah. the way. <laughs> that, that, uh, that, but, but I want to say, the fact that Moshe writes his word, and then writes, writes it his words, but then it was canonized into the Torah, this itself has theological meaning. This means that the voice of humanity is canonized into the book, which is presented as the, as the words of God. Which means the book of Dvarim upgrades the human voice. It says the Torah is t- two things. It's what God says, and it's the way human beings understand what God says. The Torah is true voices. And the Rabbi Tzadok says it's the beginning of the Torah. Which means, by the way, if according to my interpretation, and not my interpretation, in fact, it's Torah Shabbat, it means that the first Pirush La Torah, the first interpretation for the Torah, is the last book of the Torah. Which means that the first Pirush Torah, the first interpretation of Torah, was delivered by Noten Torah, by Moshe Rabbeinu. That's a, an amazing concept. Let's get into that idea of sacrifices now. We talked about that because here is an idea which is really interesting. It's something, once again, which if you look at the very, not in isolation, you probably won't notice. But after reading your book, I don't see how I can't not notice it. That whereas in Vayikra and Bamidbar, there is a strong emphasis on Korbanot. And you point out that in Devarim, that emphasis is not there. It's de-emphasized, if anything, while at the same time, there's a strong emphasis on one place of worship. Could you talk about what those mean, why they're important, and how they work together? Okay, so when we say that the first, that the fifth book of the Torah is the first interpretation of the Torah, and we mention it's because also there's, when he tells a story again, there is parts that he leaves out, like himself. Okay, that's what we did before. That's a political, psychological move. But then there's something very important. We need to be, the Torah has, I would say, the Torah is a mix between two genres, between narrative, nomos and narrative, between laws and between stories, right? By the way, 
and tell the Torah in the Mizrach um, HaKadur, the uh, ancient, ancient Near East. Ancient Near East. So we had these two genres. There was like myths like Gilgamesh and um, and there is laws like Hammurabi. But they're separate genres. But Torah is the first text to merge them together. And that'll be this trademark of Judaism ever since. We live, what is our life? It's about we live in stories and we practice deeds. So we go back into these two genres. So a major part of the biblical halacha is building the mishka and rituals and zivach or la like these are all the names of a lot detailed rituals that we're supposed to practice. And then Moshe tells a story of the halacha all over again, and he leaves out almost all the rituals. Specifically there's, the Beit HaMikdash, meaning the temple rituals. There is no chatat. You can't find kubar chatat in Sefer Tzorim. There is no asham in Sefer Tzorim. Ola is mentioned in one word, but it's not really taken care of. There is like it's not there. It's the missing part of the speech. So he tells the story all over again, but he leaves out that part of the story, uh, of the law. But it gets worse, or maybe better. It depends how you touch this. <laughs> he has to tell the law all over again, and then leaves out the ritualistic parts. Besides Kulban Shlamim, we'll go into the earlier minutes. He also tells the narrative all over again. Now the narrative we all know. There was Yitzhak Mitzrayim, there was the Nidbah. But a key part of the narrative is the building of the Mishkan. Right? Betzalel, Ben Uri built the Mishkan and they're all asked to give their jewelry and they give too much, right? We love those stories. How and there's A huge percentage of Sefer Shmot is that. So Shmot and Bamitba and Vaika and I would say I would say there's more detail in the different process of Vniyat HaMishkan than Yitziat Mitzrayim. In the narrative, not only in the law, in the narrative, Nadav Avihu, you know the great tragedy that happened later on in Sethel Bamidbar, how the Mishkan is located in the center, everything is in between, and Chanukat HaMesiim. So, the tell Sethel Vrim, the Torah invests more than one book in, as, um, in prime real estate, the Torah itself, the story of building the Mishnah. All of that does not exist when Moshe tells the story again. We have Yitzhak Mitzrayim, we have the Midbar, and a book and a half is shrunk into three psuki. It goes like this. God tells Moshe, after he breaks the tablet, he says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he says, next time, bring with you an Ahon. It's broke class die. Make an ahon and ark, and that's it. Make an ark. Aselachahon it. That's it. Everything. That's it. Make a make a a ark from wood. So yes. And by the way, of course, the commentators don't even know if that's the same ark as we mentioned before. That's a different question. And that's right. So so yes. So yes. Okay. So they took the mishkan and the narrative out of the sipul, the agadah. And the rituals out of the law, out of the halacha, creating speech where the narrative does not emphasize mikdash and the law does not emphasize ritual. What's the kind of, what is it doing here? But this, right from now on, I'll be interpretation. But the fact that the mishkan is absent from the narrative and rituals are absent from the law, that is a solid That's fact. fact. That's fact. And the only korban that is mentioned is emphasized. Shlamin. The korban, what we do with the Hadim, Shlamin. Now, I don't want to go in, no, at least this, this, I don't know if this is too much details for a podcast, but you know, Ola, korban Ola, the sacrifice of Ola, is the entire korban is sacrificed on the Mizbeach, on the altar. Chatat. Part is sacrificed, part the priests eat. Actually, when the Kohanim eat the Chata, that's a part of the process of it's part of the atonement, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there is an end. Shlamin is eaten by the people who sacrifice. That's Shlamin. But you're, you have limited time. You can't. You have to eat a lot in limited time. 
So the way you do it, you invite other people to other people to enjoy it. Several so believe emphasize that the other people who enjoy Qurban Shamin is Bagir, Yito, Almana. The people who are hungry can now enjoy that is the only Qurban that is celebrated in Shlamin. Not the Qurban that connects a human being to God, but the Qurban that connects human beings to themselves and the stronger to the weaker. That's the only Qurban that's mentioned, and that Qurban is amplified and emphasized. So what is it doing here? What is it doing here? <laughs> okay. So from now on, this is no. So after reading the book of Dali many, many times, I realized what is this speech about? There is a basic anxiety within this speech. And it's a following anxiety. Moshe is afraid that the Hebrews will enter Eretz conquer Eretz build a monarchy in Eretz but then their society will deteriorate, corrupt, and they'll be exiled. And the speeches, if you follow these words, you'll be able to survive in Eretz But if you won't, you won't be able to survive in Eretz So I want to mention two things. One, it's very interesting. The gap between the mindset of the person giving the speech and the people listening to the speech. Try to imagine, Rabbi, what it means to listen to that speech in the 12th century BC. You have anxiety because you're about to enter Israel and fight the Canaanites. I'm sure that's the main anxiety they have. For them, the challenge is how do we enter Israel and how do we conquer Israel? But for Moshe, the anxiety is how do we manage to stay in Israel after we conquer? Because He's Moshe not worried about the conquering. He's worried about what happens. You're going to be fine. That's not the problem. The problem is once you actually are morally in charge. Moshe understanding something very profound. For Jews, it's easier to build their country. It's harder to keep it going. I'm saying that while I'm right now on the verge of, I don't want to say a panic attack, but I'm filled with anxiety as an Israeli in 2023, understanding that the job of building Israel was hard. But sustaining it, keeping it going, might even be harder. That is what Moshe understood. He doesn't give him one piece of advice how to conquer Israel. All his advice, all his struggles, how after you're successful, how does that success not destroy you? How do you stay in Israel? And he says, and this is what he says, if you'll keep my words, you'll be okay. So I think this is what he's doing. He's taking from all the Torah, the parts, that are essential for their survival. You see, Moshe, he's not reforming the Torah. He's not saying, oh, we're canceling the rituals. No, I'm sure he thinks, and I think there's also a remisa to that. I won't go into it, but the rituals are important. Perform them. But I'm giving you now the part of the Torah. I'm not telling you all the Torah all over again. I'm just saying to you the part that keeping it and observing it is what will keep you as a society alive, glued together, and strong. Which means, I think Moshe is not doesn't want to change the rituals. That's a wrong interpretation. He doesn't want to cancel the rituals. It's a wrong interpretation. He just wants to emphasize the parts of the Torah that are not rituals and saying the korbanot are important. That they are not what's the part that are going to keep your society alive and going. About a month and a half ago, I had Rabbi Joshua Berman on this podcast, and he talked about his new book about Megillat Echa, which he says is a response to temple theology. Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem Hema, that you point to the temple, that is what's going to keep us in Israel. So it sounds like you're saying that Moshe is arguing something similar to what Yirmiyahu said in Megillat Echa. Hechal Hashem, the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, is important, it's fine, but it is not what is going to keep you in Israel. And pretending that that is the source of your strength is mistaken. That's not what will keep you in Israel. There are the other things that you got to look at that will keep you in Israel. That's the thing that you do. It's important, but it's not relevant to keeping you here. It's misguided. And if you believe that performing all the rituals down to the detail, that will keep you in Israel, you won't stay in Israel. Because that will, because you will, uh, you will not, you'll, you'll forget what's really important. And you're right. So Eicha, Jeremiah they are echoing the Moshe's theology. They are disciples of Moshe. Moshe Haban Shenevi'im Chazal say. So Moshe is our goat. But why is it the key? Why is Dvarim the centerpiece of the Tanakh? Because he tells the past all over again and the future Nevi'im are going to echo his, one of his important moves, creating an internal hierarchy between the mitzvot, saying that mitzvot 
that that cultivate ethical sensitivity towards the weak. Those are the mitzvot that will keep us in Israel. And the rituals are important to the mitzvot, but they're not the essential part of the Torah. Practicing them, that's not what's going to keep our society alive and going in Israel. Now, how do we make that work together with the idea of that place that Moshe keeps on emphasizing, the place where the base of Mikdash is, because he may downplay Korbanot, but he certainly emphasizes this concept of a central place of temple worship. Great. So besides taking the Mishkan out of the story and the Korbanot out of the law, he tells us of another law that is not at least explicitly in the other, in the first books. And that is that we're only allowed to sacrifice sacrifices in, in a Makom Sharif Chavash. In the place I got, like it, let's call it Bekan. Although the, that term doesn't. That term doesn't appear, but it's repeatedly called the place that God will choose. A Makom Sharif So interesting, it's just the centralization of worship. That must mean that he thinks that the Makom Sharif is so sacred, and therefore we can only sacrifice and worship God in that place. But there's a problem with that. How, how do you marry glorification of the Mikdash and de-emphasizing the rituals in the Mikdash? How do you bridge that? That's one question. And the second question is, there are also laws in the books before Sifilvarim that apply in the Mikdash itself, like Moham Mikdash. Having a sense of awe of the Beit Mikdash. Exactly. Now it appears twice, Moham Mikdash, and Rambam develops that a whole, uh, a lot of halachot of how do you develop a sense of R of the Mikdash. And that also doesn't exist in Sephardim. Moham Mikdash, the command to have awe towards the Mikdash, is not in the Sephardim that centralizes everything in the Mikdash. So, how do you, okay. so uh, it seems paradoxical or contradictory. Yeah, contradictory. So the Korbanot aren't important. But the Mikdash is important, but Moham Mikdash doesn't exist. Okay, so how do you put this together? So I'm following here Maimonides. In Moreni Bukhim, one of the places in the Moreni in uh, the guide, the guide, guide uh, for the perplexed. Uh, Lex, uh, About yeah, which you wrote a right, book as well. Which, yeah, yeah, which you can see on the so, bookshelf behind me. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, the guide for the there's three parts. So in, in, in volume three, Chapter 32 and at other places, Maimonides makes the following argument, which is very interesting. He says, Why does the Torah limit the space where you could sacrifice Korbanot only to one very strong place? Why does it do that? So Maimonides argues it's not because the place is holy, it's so holy, but because the Torah wants to limit the possibilities of Korbanot and therefore strip Korbanot from our daily life. In other words, having a centralized place of worship isn't to emphasize the place, but to de-emphasize sacrifices elsewhere. Yeah, so we're not allowed to have sacrifice here besides the Nikdash. The Nikdash I go three times a year. De facto, the centralizing worship in the Nikdash, de facto, creates a life of no sacrifice on a daily basis. So, and by the way, I, I, I have an analogy here. This is a little bit, you know, provocative, but I think it's interesting. Teldo Elze, in, in uh, his great book, Metinata Yudin, the state of the Jews, uh, Yudinstat. He says that um, um, we will need to build synagogues in the Jewish state. But the re- <laughs> I hope you won't be offended, Rabbi. The reason why we need synagogues in the Jewish state, so the rabbis will stay in the synagogues and they stay out of the public states. Spertel says we will somehow separate Judaism from politics not by not building synagogues, but by building synagogues and they'll stay there. By the way, and that's how, by building synagogues, Israel won't be a theocracy, says Elzik. By the way, just like generals stay out of politics and they stay in their bases. We bases so that generals won't be involved in politics and synagogues, so rabbis won't be involved in politics. I think in Israel we didn't read those pages. <laughs> yeah, I think we might skip those pages in his book. I mean, the truth is, it's not denigrating generals or rabbis. In fact, it's saying there is a place for them, but exactly. to mix together is a type of kilayim, it's a type of forbidden mixture. They have exactly. to be where they belong. But, so, but like putting it in one place, it's also not putting it in other places. And that's what Moshe is saying. He's saying, let's put all rituals in one place and de facto emptying it from any other place. But he doesn't want the other places that don't have kolbanos now empty from a connection with God. Not at all. You just doesn't want it to be that connection with God. For the Neumah Halon Chemulshe, for Sefer Tzavim, he wants 
all the places to be filled with worshiping God. But how do you worship God according to the Sebelzalim? With words. The words. The idea of repetition of God's words, which you do all day and everywhere. This is a light motif in Sebelzalim. That's, so I would say, that replaces sacrifice. So it says sacrifice only, sacrifice nowhere. I mean, shrinking into one place, emptying the public sphere from sacrifice and filling it with words, with text, with language. That is the shift of Sefer Tvarim, I think. So you're saying that Sefer Tvarim, it's not just that it's de-emphasizing ritual, therefore de-emphasizing religion, not at all. You're saying it actually no. has a very strong understanding of religion and God, but it changes the focus to a verbal worship of God, along with taking care of those who are in our community. Yes. Stripping the public space from sacrifice does not mean secularization of public space. Not at all. Not at all. I think what Sefer Tvarim demands is... Um, the, the love of God, this is something It wants a connection with God that is not necessarily dependent on priests and sacrifice. It's about the people with Vavchana, so it's not the, the big question who will go to the sky and bring us God's words? Who will go? No, you're not dependent on any who, you're not dependent on anyone. It's your only dependent with ficha over chalas. Okay, then I have another question because you talk about this too. In that one place, which is the place where God is resident, you say he's not resident. The Moshe de-emphasizes the temple as a place where Hashem is actually quote unquote living, which obviously is also something we'd say from Malachim. Shlomo HaMelech said when he argued, how can I build a house for God? The whole universe can't contain God. So what in your understanding is Moshe trying to do with that? Does he see God as wholly transcendent? Does he see God as imminent? What is the role of God in Moshe's understanding here? This is very interesting. He says he can only worship God through sacrifice in the Mikdash. And then he says, by the way, God is not in the Mikdash. He says two things. And God is not in the Mikdash. Now, how does it say it's not in the Mikdash? Let's give you an example of this very paradox. Like, um, Feel free to, to say how we see this in English. I don't, I don't sure, Mikra Bikurim is the text, the recitation of a text that goes along with the giving of the first fruits in the temple. Exactly. So you bring in your first fruits and you go to God's place. And then while you offer the fruits to God, you say the following text. You say to God, I would say, observe us from where you are, from where you dwell, I guess. So I go to God's place and the text I say, oh, this is not God's place. God's place is in the sky. So it's created contrast between the ritual and the words. The ritual, I'm going to a place. The words, by the way, this is not his place. He's in the sky. Oh, by the way, so you think he's physically in the sky? By Ayim Shamor, we say that if we don't observe God's words, what will he do to the sky? He will la'atzor et ha-shamayim. And he's saying, where is that? He'll close it up. He'll close it up. He'll close the sky. So I guess he's not in the sky. He has control over the sky. So obviously sky is a metaphor. He controls the sky. So according to Sefer, it is all Sefer Barim. So when we say he's in the sky, we don't mean literally in the sky. So what do we mean? I think the book of Deuteronomy has not a systematic theology, but an intuitive theology that God is in some way transcendent. He's not in the Mishkan. He's in the sky, but the sky is obviously a metaphor if we see the way he uses Shemaim throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So yeah, he has an idea of a transcendent God. So, I mean, you would expect the text that centralizes ritual in the Mikdash has a theology that God is in the Mikdash, but that's not how the Deuteronomy works. The text that, 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 that pushes all rituals into the Mikdash also takes God out of the Mikdash. According to Sefer Shmot, I think it, you could maybe say, Rasuli Mishkan Veshachanti Betocham, and in other places, Betocham means like somehow God is represented in a cloud in that space. According to Chazal, it's asarat fachim above the avon and the kaporet and beneath the kruvin. You might have, you might have like that. Like that's how Rachmanides Shat understands 
understand that God is somehow is present there. The book of Dvari takes God out of the Mikdash, sees in the Shalim and Shalim metaphorically. So he pushes ritual into the Mikdash and God out of the Interesting. Although it does also say that he is God in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. So it's not completely making him transcendent. It also acknowledges a divine imminence too, perhaps a term that, that transcends both of these terms. It's saying that God is neither transcendent nor imminent. He's something else. I don't know. What's important, but it doesn't have a systematic theology, but God is not in the Mikdash. That's not where he lives. <laughs> right. Interesting. Now, there's so much I want to ask you. I know we don't have that much time, but I want to definitely discuss monarchy because one of the major innovations we see in Devarim is the concept of monarchy. There was no mention of a king beforehand. And even though when it's mentioned in Parshat Shoftim, it only mentions it in the context of these are the things that the king cannot do or has to do, there's no mention of monarchical power. There's no concept of even what a king's role is, except that he can't have a lot of money, he can't have a lot of horses, he can't have a lot of wives, and he must have a Sefer Torah by him at all times. Other than that, we know nothing. So how does Sefer Devarim present a king, and what is his role? Again, just like in the Mikdash, we have this like tension where it says all worship is in the Mikdash, and yet God is not in the Mikdash. So we have something very similar comes to monarchy. The only text in the Torah that establishes a monarchy is Sefer In Sefer Shmuel and Babitba, there's no king. And there's no king, by the way, where we expect to find a king. Like, for example, in Sefer Baikra, where it describes the different roles of, let's say, Asher Kohen Yechita, when a priest sins, what's the Kohen Fatati has to perform? Nasi Asher Yechita, like when a leader of a tribe sins, what's the Kohen he has to lakrib? The missing pasuk is menech hashal yichita. What's the korban of a menech that sins? So there's two options here. The fact that pasuk doesn't exist. Option number one, the Torah thinks that kings can't sin. I doubt it. Unlikely. I doubt. I, it's unlikely that the Torah <laughs> that really understands human nature and the and you know. Okay, so I think at least we don't recognize monarchy. Or for example, that pasuk. You're not allowed to curse a judge or a leader of a tribe. What about a king? Are we allowed to curse him? Two options. Either we're allowed to curse a king or just ignore monarchy. What I'm saying is that the fact that monarchy doesn't exist in other Hakim in the Torah, it doesn't exist even places where it's supposed to appear. So it's like the Torah is very, like, as opposed to Nevi'im Rishonim, where the kings are very dominant, in the Torah, the king is just, is shockingly not there. And the only place that the king appears, I mean, if you don't count, right. so Adomin are the kings, and then they say the Jews, the Israelites will have a king. That's in Sefer and Bereshit. But like besides, like very minor, maybe the word king was said, or in, uh, also in Kitabu, but there is a king. But, um, uh, the only time we have a Yaakov in the bracha, he says, Ad Shilo, implying it might be some sort of king figure, but very oblique. Name. These are not it's obvious only, references. So it's so, so the okay, so you say, okay, Sefer Valim is, is, is a book that's from monarchy. It's the only book that mentions the king. But the book that, that enables us, that creates the halachic framework for a monarchy, is also the book that limits the monarchy. Right? Just like with the Migdash, right? It's also that limits the monarchy. How does it limit it? Like you've mentioned, loyal better machine. Royal Ben Rashim actually means limited diplomacy. Because the way they created the diplomatic ties in the ancient world was that um, you know, the king married the daughter of the other king. They had this concept that how the way you create international relationship is turning international relationships to internal family relationships. Like they thought that leading doing family politics is easier than than international politics. They were obviously not Jews if they thought that family <laughs> politics are easier to manage. <laughs> you know, this continued even into the last century in Europe. Different countries would marry. You see all the different princes and princesses. That's, the princess of Italy yeah. marry the prince of Belgium. You know, it's things like that all the that's time. Right, it right now it's unthinkable, but then that's how you did it. So when Dora says that the king can't have many wives, it actually means it's limiting the State Department. It's limiting your diplomacy. Saying, that's obvious. It's limiting your military. And the case of the Zavrel, it's limiting taxation. So it actually has a vision of small government. It has a government, small, limited government. And the king himself, the most important part of those pasukim, by the way, is the pasuk that's not there. Because 
these psukim appear as a part of a larger. This is a, this is a chapter where uh, all the all the institutions are found. Let's say navi. So it says if you see a navi and it's a navi emit, you have to listen to him. Or the Beit Din, we have to yamin We have to listen to the Beit Din. And we have a monarchy, and it doesn't say you have to listen to the king. So this is so interesting, Rabbi, that we're not commanded to obey the king. Now that's so weird because the oldest trick in the book is this is what Spinoza argues that religion was invented in order to create political stability. The oldest trick of the book goes like this: God told me to tell you to obey me. <laughs> you use people's religious passion to create political obedience. That's the oldest trick in the book, not in our book, Rabbi. In our book, in Sefer Vavim, that trick is not used. We are there is not a mitzvah to obey the king. There's something else upside down. The king is ordered to obey the Torah. So we don't have a king. The king that is portrayed in Sefer Dvarim is not a king that controls us. It's a king that's controlled by the law. So it's a very... So this is... And by the way, the first concept ever of a limited political body is in Sefer Dvarim. The founding fathers of the United States of America, which quoted John Locke and quoted Montesquieu, quoted Sefer Dvarim more than any other book. Because the idea of limited government an idea, by the way, us Israelis are struggling with, as we're talking, how limited should government be? It's a very, yes, that idea is, its origins are right here in Sefer Farim. And by the way, this also takes us back to your first question. Why did Moshe take himself out of the story? Because he has a political vision where the kings don't have a dominant role in the story of the people. So he takes himself out of the past to create a political structure that in the future, Kings won't be so dominant. That's very interesting because in Sefer Shoftim, the book of Judges, which takes place not long after the days of Moses, we see that there was a tribal federation and no king. And the book is explicit that having no king was not always particularly healthy. Some terrible moral wrongs took place because there was no centralized monarchy. And that fact seems to dominate much of the book and some of the very tragic episodes that took place in the book. Oh yeah, I, I, if you want to look like in very like if you want to now look at this whole story from seventy thousand feet, so we have two political experiments in the Vim Rishon Shoftim and Melachim, and they both ended terribly. Shoftim ended terribly, and Melachim ended terribly with Chuban and Ganut. Why did Sefer Shoftim end terribly? Because in Melech Rishon, no centralized power. Why did Melachim end terribly? I want to argue because there was a Melech Rishon. Almost all the reasons why we failed were because of kings and because of centralized power. And Bichlal, the monarchy split into two was because they because they wanted to have too, every side wanted to have too much power. So it goes like this. I think we have two political experiments in the Vim Rishonim. One with no king, two with kings that are too they're over controlling and over dominance. Both experiments violate Sefil Dorim. Sefil Dorim is not about anarchy, and it's not about absolute monarchy. It's trying to create limited government. And so I would say in Shoftim, they didn't obey Sefer Farim because they didn't have a king. In Sefer Melachim, many times they didn't obey Sefer Farim because they had a king with no boundaries and no limitations on power. So Sefer Farim was waiting, I think, I mean, I think the big challenge of Israel today is the Israel today is a is another experiment. It's a third experiment, fourth experiment. We kind of the Hashemunayim. And can we have centralized power, but not being too dominant, not too authoritative, and with limitations? The questions that Israelis are dealing in 2023 are biblical questions. We have to talk about that in just a moment. But before we get there, I just want to ask you about this idea of centralized monarchy that's too powerful, because you suggest in the book that really began with Shlomo HaMelech, and you contrast Shlomo, as I mentioned, to Yehoshua. You say Yehoshua was a faithful disciple of Moshe Rabbeinu as he presents the Torah in Dvarim. And you say that Shlomo HaMelech actually violated a lot of what Moshe was trying to establish, even though we see at certain points Shlomo was trying to do what Moshe wanted. For example, what I mentioned before, when he says, this house can't really contain God. Clearly, his understanding of theology was at least in part in line with what we saw in Sefer Dvarim, but the centralized power aspect was violated completely. Can you talk about that for a minute? 
I just want to notice, I think um, I'll talk about it, but with what I know in 2023 and not what I wrote in 2013. Okay. okay. We see what's the real threat to Israel today? The vision. The vision into tribes, into groups that can't understand each other, can't argue with each other, and are starting to fight with each other and hurt each other. And what many times you can't see when you're in a fight is that by fighting with the other tribe, you're really injuring and crippling yourself. Now, that is a biblical phenomenon. That biblical phenomenon begins right after Shlomo dies. Right after Shlomo dies, uh, the kingdom is split into two. And you ask, why was it split into two? So, simple Melachim answer is, I know we don't, we don't have a lot of time, but the northern kingdom that tries to rebel and liberate itself from the control of the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, they go to the son of, of, uh, of Shlomo, to Rechavam, and he says, your father over-controlled us. Please let go of it. Your father. So it's very interesting. The rebellion against Rechavam is actually a late rebellion against Shlomo. It's aggression built up all throughout the time of Shlomo. And it turns out that all the tremendous projects, building projects of Shlomo, had a price. And the price was the liberty of many people, probably especially in the north. So, and then, and all the frustration against Shlomo, they have the guts to, <laughs> to uh, project their frustration towards Shlomo. So when Shlomo dies, all the frustration bursts out on his poor son and the rebel against him and the kingdom is divided into two and it fights each other as four cycles of civil war, by the way, between Isled and Yehuda until Isled is very weak and is destroyed and exiled. Yehuda stayed by itself and then it's very weak, isolated, destroyed, and exiled. That story, the deterioration of the Bible, begins after Shlomo because of some of the practices of Shlomo himself. So yes, I think Shlomo is a great example of if the problem in Shoftim was in no power, the problem of Shlomo is too much power and they both violate the balance of Moshe, of Sefer Tanik. Okay, let me ask a final question and let me point out, Micha, that I have a list here of questions and we're not going to get to so many of them because there's so much more I want to talk to you about. I hope you'll do me the honor of coming back someday to continue this conversation. But in the meantime, let's conclude with a question about, and we don't have to speak about anyone in particular or any particular philosophy, but I'd like to know what message the Sefer Devarim have Lamase, practically nowadays, that you think that we in the state of Israel need to take home with us? Because you mentioned before that what really worries you today, what keeps you up at night, is the fact that we're not learning the lessons of Dvarim and that building a state is easy compared to maintaining a state. What do we have to look at Sefer Dvarim and learn in order to maintain the state of Israel today, given what's going on? The importance of not getting what you want. What do you mean? I would say there's two dangerous political fantasies. One, and this was, let's say, communists used to have this sin of hubris, that if I have a grand, grand theory and I implement that theory on the world, that the world will be shaped by my theory and the results will be results that I could predict. And I think that, I, that idea that I could control the future is a very dangerous idea. It's idolatry. Not only communists have this idea, I think Alik Shalon in 1982 tried to reshape the Middle East, building a Maronite Christian state in Lebanon. Uh, the Palestinians will flee to Jordan, the Palestinian, Palestinian state there will have a new Middle East. With all, with, and that backfired. Donald Rumsfeld came to the Middle East. Let's have a democratic Iraq, and the um, uh, entire Middle East will imitate Iraq. Well, the whole Middle East will be dem the democracy. Uh, that backfired. She won't be able to have a vision of a new Middle East. Also, will eat the peace which will turn the entire Middle East into... That backfired. Israeli history teaches us something interesting, that, that we can be architects of space, but we can't be architects of time. I can build a bridge. I can control space in a predictable way, but I can't control the future. I can't control history. I can't control time. Time is not in my control. Um, I think right now in Israel, we're suffering also because of political hubris of political leaders that never learned the law of unintended consequences, that thought that you can do radical moves and predict the results. And that is something that, um, that is, okay, and now that is something that I think Moshe is very, very, it's just not to have political hubris. That's one. And that's what I'm saying. 
And F2, um, being willing not to get what you want, also, if it means surrendering to your enemies will lead to weakness. But surrendering to other tribes of your own country and your own society could bring strength. And being willing not to get what you want, if it means compromising with other tribes of Israel, then it's also, so I would say, recognizing how limited we are intellectually, we can't predict the future. And how limited we are politically, we can't impose our will on other tribes and other groups, other people. That's a double limitation. We can't control time and we can't over control other Israelis, other tribes. And understanding the double limitation is something that many Israelis in all parts of Israel today on both sides are losing. They think they could do radical actions. I'm talking about part of protesters and some parts of this government. Think that they could predict the results of their actions. We're doing this, we're recording this, by the way, end of Shabbat, a week before Israel is going to um, unknown territory. And we might face unintended consequences generated by people that thought they could, they could predict the results of their actions. Now that is a everything Moshe is warning against. Moshe sees the idea that if human beings believe that they can, they can predict the results of their own actions and they can control all the people according to their agenda and their will, meaning unlimited politics are unlimited, you know, uh, and, and, and no limits on your intellect. He sees that as idolatry. And I think he sees that as Egyptian idolatry. Glorification of what you could achieve in politics, that is Avodazah. And maybe this is a good way to end. I think Moshe is the leader to try to take Israel out of Egypt, but also Egypt out of Israel. And taking Israel out of Egypt out of politics means having an idea of modest politics, the politics of compromise, all this non very not charismatic way of thinking about politics. And by the way, he himself didn't only take himself out of the story, he also tried to take himself out of out of not only out of time, but out of space. He's not out of story, out of space. The Egyptian kings were buried in pyramids. Where was Moshe buried? Unknown. We don't know. And, and the important thing, Rabbi, is that it says being forash and said that we don't know where. Because if we didn't have that asuk, we would have had at least one or two sites of the Kevin of Moshe Rabbeinu. And it would have been business, good business, and everything. Sure. <laughs> sure. So, so, and then I was trying to say his, the way he died is actually an anti Egyptian death, which represents his entire life. Live not, is there, I think there's a song, Walk Like an Egyptian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think Moses, the Bengals. Not like, <laughs> live not like an Egyptian. And taking Egypt, taking Egypt out of Israel, taking Egypt out of our politics is one of the biggest challenges that, uh, that I'm very optimistic about the future of Israel, but I'm very worried about the presence of Israel. And uh, these are exactly the, the, the challenges and the questions we're wrestling with. Okay, well, I thank you. This has been a very enlightening conversation. I learned a lot from the book, and I learned a lot from this conversation as well. And it's an honor to speak with you. And I thank you very, very much, Dr. Micha Goodman. I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined.
Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.